Wow. That's one of my favorite songs. We're in a series entitled Bringing the Kingdom to the Broken. And our text for this morning's message is found in Matthew chapter 9. I invite you to turn there with me now. And this morning, what we will be doing is we will be taking the story of Jesus healing the paralytic as it's given in Matthew's gospel. And then what we want to do is we want to come alongside that and lay beside it Mark's version of the same miracle that Jesus performs. You recall that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus cites Torah, and he says, you have heard it said by your ancestors, and then he will state the law, and then he will add these words, but I say unto you. In other words, Jesus placed himself in an authoritative position not to replace the law, but to fill the law full for what the law was intended to do from the very beginning. And so this morning when we come to our passage, we have two writers telling the same story, but they're telling it from two different perspectives. You know, normally you don't waste time in a sermon saying something unless it has some meaning for what you're going to be reading. And I want to point this out to you because in Matthew's gospel, his purpose is to write to a Jewish audience, and he's writing to people who have great familiarity with the Old Testament. And so he points to scriptures and makes allusions to all of these references to the Messiah, promises that were made centuries before about Jesus' coming. And he does this because he wants them to see these as being fulfilled in Jesus. And he wants them to see that Jesus, Jesus is not just a Jewish king, but Jesus is a savior for the whole world. Mark takes a different approach as Mark writes not to Jews but primarily to a Gentile audience. And so he tells the same story, but the details that he gives to us as he tells the story are those which he believes will appeal mostly to those who do not have familiarity or as much familiarity with the Old Testament as do those that would be reading Matthew's Gospel. But whichever approach you take, what you need to understand is that both of these writers tell this story, and as they tell it, it's not about the healing of a paralytic, but rather it's a telling about Jesus' power to forgive sin. Forgiveness is God's occupation. Do you ever come across somebody in your lifetime and they ask you, well, what do you do for a living? Forgiveness is God's occupation. And through his miraculous healing of the paralytic, Jesus showed that forgiveness is his occupation. This meant he was God. And we begin our reading in Matthew chapter 9, the first verse. Here we find these words so he that is Jesus got into a boat crossed over and came to his own town for then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher 
seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the scribes said to themselves, he's blaspheming. Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So he got up and he went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. Keep in mind that in the Greek text, there are no verse and chapter markings. So that what you have in Matthew chapter 8 is just continued in chapter 9. It's not a break in the story. And you'll recall that Matthew 8, how it ended, it ended with a demonstration by Jesus of him showing his power over nature and power over Satan. And last week we saw that in Matthew 8, verse 29, even the demons recognized Jesus as the Son of God. Now Matthew 9, it begins with Jesus demonstrating he's the Son of God by forgiving sin. And this passage is important for us. And it's important for us because it shows Jesus has authority to forgive sin. And our greatest need is for forgiveness. Now Matthew chapter 9 verse 1, it tells us that Jesus returned to his own town. And it is Capernaum, that's his own town. It's the city of the king, the town of the king. And I have a map here I want to show you on the screen. I promise not to do this to you every week, but I want you to see that this red uh, triangle you see up there, it marks what's known as the evangelical triangle. The majority of what we read about the life of Jesus takes place in that triangle. Um, Obviously, he goes to the city of Jerusalem because he's a faithful Jew, an Orthodox Jew. He observes the festivals. He does all the things that are required for those who can go to the city and worship and observe the sacrifices there. But the majority of his ministry for three years takes place in this triangle area. And just for points of reference, if you look at the bottom left corner, uh, that would be where you would place Capernaum. And then up in the top part there is Chorazin, and then over to the right, the top right part, uh, upper right part of the triangle that you look there, that is Bethsaida. And so you have these three points of contact, and within that lower left corner there, that's the place where you have the Mount of Beatitudes, just outside the city of Capernaum. Now, chapter 9, verse 2 says to us, that just then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher, and seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, have courage, 
son. That's actually an imperative. And it's an imperative given with the same force of a person who is facing a great challenge, a difficult thing is in front of them. And so Jesus is giving him this imperative, have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven you. Now Mark's account furnishes some additional details. Two different writers telling the same story. And when Mark tells us the story, in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we read these words. When he, that is Jesus, entered Capernaum, again for, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and I put there in parentheses, Simon Peter's house. Jesus didn't own a home of his own. Ministry headquarters for Jesus while he is in Capernaum is the home of Simon Peter. It says in Mark chapter 2, so many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. And since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the man, the mat on which the paralytic was lying. And seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now this scene that you're viewing here is the fulfillment of a 700-year-old prophecy that is given in the book of Isaiah in the ninth chapter. Uh, you know, it won't be long from now. We have Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving I call the forgotten holiday. It's the one that we need to have every day of the year. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, we get to Christmas and all they do is remind us of all the things we don't have. And Thanksgiving just gets a blow-by because we're reminded we're supposed to be thankful for what we what do have. And the whole purpose of Christmas is to make you want stuff you don't need that you'll use for a short time. It'll break, you'll do away with it, and you'll have to go get something else. That's not in these notes anywhere, by the way. <laughs> get back on task, Sid. See that squirrel? 700-year-old prophecy given by Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. Matthew quoted it already in his uh, gospel account back in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. He quoted Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And it's a picture of this very scene that we're looking at that's unfolding before our very eyes. And the Prophecy says, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will bring honor to the way of the sea. I've got that underlined for a reason. To the land east of the Jordan, <clears throat> that's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Where's he been? He crossed over. Now he's come back. And to Galilee of the nations, and that's where Capernaum is. <clears throat> and the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned in those living in the land of, on those living in the land of darkness. <clears throat> now Matthew, when he quotes it, he quotes it to use it as a 
point of transition to explain to people, here's the ministry of John the Baptist. He's the last spokesperson of the Old Testament. But he uses it to transition over to introduce Jesus in his ministry, who is the first prophet in the New Testament. Now, I underline that phrase, the way of the sea, because in Jesus' day, Capernaum was situated along an international highway that ran from west to east, east to west, and the Romans who did trade off the Mediterranean Sea, who would ship things across the Mediterranean home to Rome, would come along this coastline and they would travel a particular route because there were mountain ranges there. They looked for the easiest route in order to be able to transport goods and services. And that route would come from the Mediterranean Sea. It would run up by the Sea of Galilee through the city of Capernaum on around toward Bethsaida and then it would head eastward. So what you have here is you have Jesus setting up headquarters on an international highway. You know, in the ruins of Capernaum, they've actually found a Roman sign that is a mile marker for this international highway that runs through the city of Capernaum. So Jesus sets up his ministry headquarters along an international route. Why would he do that? So that he can interact with people from all over the world. Now, it says to us that as we were reading a few moments ago, it talks about this huge crowd that has shown up to see Jesus. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount. There's a great crowd that follows him into the town of Capernaum. There are some healings that take place there. Remember, a leper is healed. And then Peter's mother-in-law is healed of a fever. And why is he going to Peter's house? Because he's tired. <laughs> And he goes there, and Peter's house is serving as his home or ministry headquarters there in Capernaum. And so he heals Peter's mother-in-law when he comes into the home. And there's this huge crowd that had followed him there. But remember, he got into a boat. He told his disciples, let's launch over to the other side. And many, not just the 12, got into boats, and they went with him over on this other side. We remember he encountered the demonic world over there. And he goes over there and he says, I'm going over here to take back what's mine. And then he travels back across the sea. He comes back here and who does he find? He finds, remember all those crowds of people? There they are again. They're waiting for him and he shows up. And it tells us that uh, this crowd is a mixed bag of people, just like we found it to be originally. It's got um, probably mostly Jewish people. Some of those uh, were very devout uh, Jews. And they were all over different parts of the country. But you've got to understand that, um, uh, poor analogy, but I guess uh, just like Tennessee and Alabama, you know, fans. You've got these people who are all fans of football, but they don't really like each other that much. And so you've got this intermingling of people of Jews who share the same faith, but they don't really like each other all that much. But intermingled with them, you have people from other nations, 
And those who are Orthodox Jews, those who are law-abiding, law-keeping Jews, they don't want to have any interaction with these people because according to the law, if they interact with these people, come into contact with them, they themselves will become ceremonially unclean. Now, it says that this crowd follows Jesus. And the crowd assembles at Peter's house. I've got another picture here on the screen that I want you to look at with me because we don't have a, a good understanding of what kind of house this was. Uh, this is what's uh, called an insula. And in the ruins of... Um, Capernaum and also in Chorazin, they found in the ruins numerous houses like this. This is like a, this is, one in particular is called a fisherman's insula. What was Peter? A fisherman. Okay, so this is called a fisherman's insula. I, w I wanted you to see this because I wanted you to get the picture of what we have here. You get this picture of a house like your house. You got a mailbox out in front. You know, you got a white picket fence and a barking dog. And so this is not what you're looking at when you're here. You've got people, you've got Jesus inside one of these rooms. And by the way, there's a low-lying ceiling. You thought an eight-foot ceiling was short. People in that room probably are seated because it's not, it's not a 10, 12-foot ceiling. It's a low-lying ceiling but people are not just inside that room where Jesus is teaching. They're out in that courtyard. See that courtyard? And see that opening right there with the two people on the outside there? They're filling up that courtyard. They're filling up the room inside, and they're spilling outside of that wall. And here show up four guys carrying a stretcher with a paralytic on it, bringing him to Jesus. So what do they do when the way is blocked? We're not getting through here. So they go around to the side. And remember, it's a low-lying roof. And what they do is they climb up onto the roof. Now, these guys do not work with Rackley roofers. They didn't come with tools. They didn't know what they were going to find when they got there. So they go around to the side. They're giving each other a boost and a hand up to get up on top of the ceiling. And somehow the two guys on the bottom lifted up to the first two guys who get on top. They lift the body up. The other two guys give each other a boost and pull each other up. And they've got four guys now on the roof. And the text tells us what do they begin doing? They begin digging through the roof. Roofs were made of branches mixed with mud. And in some instances, tiles were used. But it was layer on layer on layer. What I'm trying to tell you is that this didn't happen in like five or ten minutes. Remember, these guys don't have tools. And they're working at this. And as this commotion is going on on the roof, down is dropping these pieces of roof on the people below who can't move around. Because remember, the room's packed. And I see Jesus just stopping. Because I believe what Jesus is doing, he's teaching Torah and he's teaching on God's forgiveness. And he pauses the lesson 
Because he wants to use this paralytic in the sermon. Now, we don't know how long it took. It wasn't a few minutes. How big's that hole got to be if you got a man on a stretcher? Pretty big. So it's taken a while. And there's this stunned silence as pieces of this roof are dropping down on the floor. And then they lower the man down. And immediately, Jesus provides forgiveness first before healing. From the text, Jesus' words seem to indicate to us that this man's physical condition was possibly, maybe even probably due to some sort of sinful practice or sinful lifestyle. Now, I don't know what that might be. It's conjecture only. I'm going simply by Jesus' words. Otherwise, why would he forgive his sins and make that a priority if he did not have some great insight into this man's greater need. Obviously, he had a physical need. But Jesus provided forgiveness first rather than healing. What do the scriptures say? Psalm 103, verses 2 and 3, we read this, My soul, bless the Lord. And do not forget all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity. He heals your diseases. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, the purpose for which Jesus came into this world, it reads, Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains, but we in turn regard him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. Crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Jesus forgives before he heals him physically. Because forgiveness was his greater need. Now we notice also from this text that we're powerless to save ourselves. A paralytic can't help himself. He couldn't walk to the meeting. People carried him there. And his paralysis, don't miss it, his paralysis is a picture of our complete inability before God. Romans 5, 6 says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Occasionally we may hear someone in an objectionable voice, maybe even derogatory, say, Christianity is just a crutch. Friends, we don't need a crutch. What we need is a miracle. 
We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We needed a resurrection. And so Jesus, he speaks these words because we are powerless to save ourselves. But we notice also we're saved by faith alone. In Mark chapter 9, the second verse, also same words, Mark chapter 2, verse 5, the scripture says, seeing their faith. Seeing their faith. Their faith refers to the faith of the paralytic as well as that of the men who were carrying him. Personal faith was necessary to receive Jesus' healing and forgiveness. And in the Bible, what we find as a definition of faith is not what we Westerners often have, which is some sort of belief system. You know, it's all about thinking it through. It's A plus B equals C. Biblical faith, that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is belief plus action. Now, many readers look at the paralytic healed in this section kind of like the same way that you could imagine yourself standing over the side and watching the flash of the detonation that causes a building in an urban area to implode. Explosives are carefully placed inside the building so that when the building collapses, it actually collapses from the outside in within that one block space. And once the rubble is cleared away, a new building rises up in its place. Unfortunately, many people watch the blast, the flash, the detonation. They're impressed. And they don't think about the new that will come in its place. The same is true here. When Jesus forgave the paralytic, he was sending a powerful message that is still missed today. Our greatest need is forgiveness. But also, Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. In verses 3 through 7, we have this running dialogue that begins to take place. Now, up to this point, you know in our reading, up to this point, in Matthew's gospel, the scribes and the Pharisees, they have been more of an object lesson than anything that is directly involved in the stories that we've been reading. Scribes, of course, were a guild of scholars skilled in copying and interpreting Torah. They viewed themselves as guardians of Jewish traditions, and the scribes considered Jesus' pronouncement of forgiveness blasphemous since only God can forgive sins. And you know their interpretation of the Old Testament is correct? In the Old Testament, there are no instances of any man forgiving sins. Only God can forgive sin. You know, you don't forgive people for what they've done against somebody else. You forgive people for what they've done against you. Am I right about it? You remember the words of David? Remember he committed adultery, murder was involved. He had sinned against the nation. He had sinned against 
Uriah. He had sinned against uh, uh, Uriah's wife. He'd sinned against his own family. But that's not the way David's prayer goes down. In the words of David, he confesses, listen to it in Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, Lord, you alone. I've sinned and I've done this evil in your sight so that who? You are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Again, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 25, the Lord declares, I sweep away your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. So when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, what he's doing is he is invoking his divine right. He's putting himself in God's place. Jesus' ability to know the scribe's secret thoughts in verse 4 implies that he has a kind of supernatural knowledge. Not a kind, but he has supernatural knowledge. In verse 5, it tells us he knows what's going on. Jesus demonstrated his authority then to forgive by healing the paralytic. Jesus proved that he has authority to forgive sins by removing the physical consequences of sin. But his tactic catches the scribes completely off guard. Perhaps they expected to get into some kind of scriptural jousting match. But what does Jesus do? He says to him, well, let me ask you, which is easier? Is it easier for me to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk? Or your sins are forgiven, which is easier? They weren't ready. They might have been ready for a lot of things. They weren't ready for that. Now think about it. There's nothing visible about forgiveness. Forgiveness is an act that takes place in the supernatural realm. But I mean, if you say <laughs> to a paralytic, get up and walk, there's only one of two things that's going to happen. He's either going to get up and he's going to walk or he's not. And everybody's going to know whether or not you have the authority to heal people and tell them to get up and walk, to heal diseases. And what does verse 7 tell us? <laughs> he got up, he took up his mat, and he went home. The scribes would have recognized this as a messianic title. When Jesus says in verse 6, back up, look at it. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority and power to forgive sin. Key title there, Son of Man. The scribes who are listening, these are the people that he's engaging in conversation with right now. They know the book. They've copied it. 
Much of it has been put to memory. And when Jesus invokes this title, Son of Man, they immediately identify it with a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Where Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 talks about the coming of Messiah and it describes that Messiah this way, one coming with the clouds of heaven, given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now, although these first century Jews did not associate the forgiveness of sin with the Messiah, Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 showed the Messiah would offer the sacrifice that accomplished the atonement of sin. And so as we march through this story, we see that God's forgiveness of sins through Jesus is something that should fill us today with a sense of awe and praise, just as it did then. The amazement of the crowd in verse 8 shows that the scribes were incapable of performing such an act. So here are these people who know the word, they could perhaps match Jesus word for word in quoting the Old Testament. But the crowd looks on this event with a sense of amazement. Because scribes can't do this. No scribe has ever done what Jesus just did. As hard for us to tell by the text, it's hard for us to tell that the worship that breaks out among the people is directed toward Yeshua or whether it's directed toward God Almighty in heaven. We're not told it's not specific in that regard. What we do see is that Jesus does not discourage it. Jesus recognizes it as genuine worship. And I was thinking about the song this morning that was sung. Man, what a beautiful song. And done so well. And I I don't know why I stayed in my seat. You know, what, three or four times it says, Don't you be shy. Get up my soul. And we just sat there. I mean, I thought people would be jumping all over me. You know, jumping up. And I don't want to be too uh, abrasive in my uh, statement here about worship. But in the Old Testament, when you come across worship, the word worship means to prostrate or bow down, to bow low. And there are two times in the Old Testament when it's acceptable. The worship of God 
and the worship before a king, an earthly king. So when these people worship, there's not people jumping to their foot saying, get up my soul, <laughs> lift up your hands. That's not what's going on here. They're prostrating themselves. They're bowing low to the ground in worship. And I read this. And I recall that in the Old Testament, there is a, a form of worship on the part of the Jewish people that they would recite certain blessings. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. They would recite certain blessings. And one of those blessings comes to mind for this very scene. As they worship, they are blessing the Lord for teaching men biblical truth. And I want you to hear a similar application of this in the Old Testament. Very familiar passage to you. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. I have sought you with all my heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. I've treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. There's that familiar vacation Bible school passage you memorized. And then verse 12. Lord, may you be blessed. Teach me your statutes. So what's going on here is they worship God. Is they are worshiping him for teaching men truth. So simple that we miss it. But what we don't miss as we move forward from this particular scene is that from this point forward, the scribes and the Pharisees will be dogging Jesus. And that was necessary. It's necessary because without their constant dogging, the crucifixion would have never taken place. If Jesus was seen only as a great healer who spoke motivational sermons, it would have been foolish to crucify him. And in order for him to finally be taken to the cross, it was necessary, we know, for Jesus to live a perfect life according to Torah. And ironically, it's through the teaching of Torah that Jesus will eventually be crucified. As possible, at some point in your life, maybe more than once, that someone says to you, You know, I'd come into your church, but if I came to your church, the roof would cave in. 
You know what they're saying? They're saying, I'm not good enough to go to church. Well, let me tell you something. Neither am I. And neither are any of you. <laughs> if holiness were a requirement for admission into a church, none of us would be admitted. The thing is, Christ, who is the head of the church, still has the authority to forgive sins. And I don't care who you are or where you've been or what you have done, no sin is bigger than God's grace. And so I want to invite you to come to Jesus today. Just as this man came, reading this story reminds me of a statistic that has not changed for decades. Do you know the number one reason why people come to church? Somebody invited them. Somebody brought them. Hey, come with us. This Sunday, we're going to church. We'd like to take you out to lunch after it's over. Well, great. We've been looking forward to visiting with y'all. Okay. Where do we meet you? It's still the main reason why people come to church. Four men carrying a man on a stretcher brought him to church. And oh, what a miracle. Let's stand together and pray. <clears throat> you know, we don't have to just read about this miracle that we have in Matthew chapter 9 to know that at least from my vantage point the greatest miracle is that God would save a sinner like me because we're all dead in our trespasses and sins and we cannot help ourselves let's just thank Jesus today for dying on the cross for us would you make Jesus your Savior? Would you say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sin. Thank you for dying for me. I receive you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior right now. Help me to live for you, to not be ashamed of you, to not tell others that I'm following you. Perhaps that's your decision, your commitment today. I want you to follow through on that decision. The conclusion of this service, I want you to come forward, and I want you to share with us. You know, today I'm taking Jesus to be my Savior. I'm choosing to follow Him. I'm not ashamed. I want everybody to know I'm following Jesus. Would you come this morning? Lord, thank you this morning for giving us your word, such a vivid picture of what you can do in our lives, and for many of us, what you have done in our lives. Help us to rediscover the wonder and the awe to worship you as we reflect upon the forgiveness you've extended to each of us. We pray in Jesus' name.